Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, we bring you the results of an investigation into an extremist group's membership list that was leaked a while back and showed names of some individuals who work in law enforcement. Cybercrime is becoming more common. An FBI special agent with what's known as the Cyber Squad joins us to explain the threats and offer some suggestions to protect yourself. We'll discuss the term Sanctuary City. It's getting a lot of attention with the flow of migrants coming to the U.S. and Illinois. Trees can be a selling point for a home, but there are concerns about pests that can wipe out certain species of trees. We'll hear how some communities are taking a more diverse approach. Also, how did this year's pumpkin crop fare? And just in time for Halloween, we'll dissect the Central Illinois connection to a famous film. Those stories and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. We'll get into the Halloween spirit in just a moment. But first, houses sell for more money in neighborhoods with big leafy canopies. So pests that can kill many trees quickly can pose real economic dangers. Some Midwestern communities are now hedging their bets. From the Kansas News Service, Celia Yopis-Jepson reports. Imagine 1,700 graceful ash trees, 40 feet tall, lining the streets and public areas of your neighborhood and turning glorious colors each fall. It's what the winter set area of Lee's Summit looked like, until it didn't. I'm touring it with developer David Gale. Mm -hmm. So that's where an ash tree would have been. The trees are gone because of emerald ash borers, beetles from Asia, and Gale regrets ever planting so many of them. Yeah, that ended up being a major mistake because we we did a monoculture of ash trees. So the dumbass developer thought, this this is great, ash trees are native. Are you referring to yourself in that sentence? Yeah, I've got to be clear, the mistake was mine. So now, variety is the name of the game. In 2021, the Winterset Board finished replacing its ill-fated single-species treescape with lindens, blackgums, oaks, and a variety of other trees. We, We need to learn this lesson. Trees are an investment, and Kim Bomberger with the Kansas Forest Service helps communities diversify their portfolios. Over the decades, landscapers, city planners, and developers across the country went all in for elms or maples or Bradford pears. I've done inventories where I've gone to roll into a neighborhood and as far ahead as I could see, it was all pin oaks. These monocultures are fragile. One pest and they're toast. Dutch elm disease devastated elms. Oak wilt thrives on pin oak. When we plant a wide diversity of species, we're helping guard against catastrophic loss. Loss to whatever new pest will arrive next, carried by global trade, and loss to extreme weather. Overland Park is one Kansas City suburb that hears the message loud and clear because nearly a third of its street trees are maples. That's like investing too much in one stock. So last year, the city put the kibosh on adding any more maples along streets and in new developments. I believe they are correct. There's an insect called the Asian longhorn beetle that's in states in the eastern part of this country. Maple is going to be kind of like candy to this insect. A major blow to a city canopy has many consequences. Kevin Boyle is an economist who heads the real estate program at Virginia Tech. When he and his wife bought a house in 2016, they set about planting trees. You know, somebody just mentioned to us the other day, boys, that's that's really going to increase your property value. And, and my response was, yeah, you're right. I, I know from the numbers it will. 
Mature canopies help home values, which boost tax bases for cities and schools. So, yeah, cities get nervous when they hear that different pests in different regions are killing off concentrations of pines, hemlocks, walnuts. Boyle has studied some of the hard-hit areas. When trees are, are damaged and dying, it reduces the value of properties. Plus, there's the price of removing and replacing so many trees. That net in Lee's Summit, nearly half a million dollars. And it'll take decades to get a mature canopy again. One like this that I saw in Manhattan, Kansas. I'm walking down just a little residential street. The birds are really singing this morning. Baltimore Oriole chicks right here in the canopy. To protect our decades-long investments, foresters have one more crucial tip to diversify our portfolios. Plant species from different genuses and families, so they aren't all close relatives with the same potential Achilles heel. Some experts recommend planting dozens of species, including non-native ones. Others say bad idea. Too many non-native trees usually doesn't create the kind of scene I saw in Manhattan. Flycatchers, wrens, orioles, finches, all serenading a single city block. I'm Celia Yopis Jepsen. Two well-known Morton pumpkin farmers say this year's drought posed some challenges, but their fields ultimately yielded a solid crop. The operators of Ackerman Family Farms and the Roth Pumpkin Patch say consumer demand has been typical. Joe Deacon reports from the Taswell County Village that dubs itself the pumpkin capital of the world. John Ackerman of Ackerman Farms admits the shortage of rainfall made it tougher on pumpkin farmers at the start. This year was challenging. Uh, there was difficult to get the uh, seeds to germinate this spring, but we finally caught some rains and it really saved the crop. We've got a good crop this year. Does that mean a good crop in terms of quality or quantity? Both, actually. Uh, plenty of pumpkins and because it was so dry, there's very little rot. The quality is extremely good. You know, pumpkins, they like it to be dry within reason. It was a little unreasonably dry early, but we came out of it very well. Nick Roth of the Roth Pumpkin Patch says their pumpkin production also came out better than he first anticipated. As dry as it was, we had trouble getting the seeds themselves or the plants themselves to emerge. With it being so dry, they sat in the ground, I think, for over a week um, before we finally had pumpkin plants emerging. And then after that, it seemed like we just we couldn't get the rain. They hung on. The plants themselves, I think, are thinner as a whole. Roth says he saw a range in growth among different types of pumpkins. Some of the varieties maybe didn't get quite as big as they normally would. So there's there's some specialty varieties that were just a little bit smaller. Our jack-o'-lantern varieties, they surprisingly did fairly well. We still have some nice big jack-o'-lanterns that we're picking um, that are nice carving pumpkins. But it's the specialty types that take the biggest hit. Ackerman describes consumer demand for pumpkins as decent, but he says it has shifted a bit over the past few years. I think there are some people worried about the economy somewhat. Uh, it's getting a little bit different because uh, right after the pandemic, people came out in droves because they wanted you know, something to do. They finally had a chance to get out. I think that kind of uh, intense need to get out to the farm may have passed a bit. But we have been blessed with an amazing amount of people out here this year. So I guess I've been very happy with uh, the, the shoppers that have come out here. The Illinois Department of Agriculture confirmed the arrival of the spotted lanternfly to the state. The invasive insect, native to Asia, is often drawn to pumpkin patches. 
The nuisance pest secretes a sticky substance that doesn't kill plants but can weaken them. Roth says they do guard against insects endangering their crop, but he didn't notice any spotted lanternflies. I don't know that I'd be able to recognize that particular pest. We do spray our, our pumpkins a couple times to, to keep the pest out. We put fungicide on and so forth as well. The pumpkin plants were, were healthy plants. It was just the lack of water that, that hurt them the most. Ackerman says he's had good crowds coming to their farm attractions this season. Well, it's weather-related, of course, so we had a ton of people do our corn maze this year. They come out to see the animals. Roth says they offer plenty of options to choose from when buying pumpkins. If you're looking for a carving pumpkin, we have pumpkins that are more round in shape. Um, and so it just kind of depends on what you like to carve. But then we also have pumpkins that are they're a taller pumpkin. that kind of gives you a nice big surface area that you can really make a neat carving out of. Ackerman has a few pieces of advice for pumpkin shoppers. I'd say shop local. Of course, I have vested interest in that. <laughs> but I think uh, shopping local keeps your local uh, small farmer uh, going. You know, when you're selecting a pumpkin, always just look for a good healthy one. Uh, ask for help if you need it. And some of the choices are actually great ones to cook and eat. Both farmers say they'll close for the season immediately after Halloween. Ackerman says he wishes that wasn't the case. Makes me a little sad because I always thought that uh, Thanksgiving should be just as important as Halloween, but uh, the truth is it's just not that way. Joe Deacon with that report from Morton. Central Illinois is the hunting ground for one of the most famous serial killers in American history. He likes big knives, stalking babysitters, and mutilating the bodies of his victims. But don't worry, he's not real. Ryan Denham explains in this report from 2022. We revisit it now. Michael Myers is the white-masked villain in 1978's Halloween, a slasher movie that revolutionized the horror genre. The franchise has endured these past 44 years, including four reboots and some very silly sequels. The 13th movie in that series, Halloween Ends, comes out October 14th. The Halloween movies take place in the fictional Haddonfield, Illinois. Clues sprinkled throughout the movies reveal that if Haddonfield really did exist, it would be located near Pontiac, right along Interstate 55. Other hints suggest it's something of a doppelganger for Bloomington Normal, from its geography to mid-sized metro amenities. John Carpenter wrote and directed the original 1978 film and has executive produced the more recent ones. We were looking for a, like a mythical small-town America where this whole drama could play out. And so we invented Haddonfield, Illinois. The name hit perfectly for us. The name was borrowed from Haddonfield, New Jersey, near where co-writer and producer Deborah Hill grew up. Carpenter himself is from a college town in Kentucky, not Illinois. While Illinois has racked up the Halloween body count, it has not reaped the economic benefit of Hollywood movie making. Movies have all been shot elsewhere places like Southern California, Utah, and South Carolina. On the original 1978 shoot in LA, the cost-conscious crew used and reused a big bag of fake leaves to recreate the fall foliage-lined streets of an Illinois town. So when we shot our, uh, the movie, we just had to watch out for palm trees, which don't really occur a whole lot there in Illinois. We uh, did not succeed in getting rid of all the palm trees, but uh, we tried. Carpenter says they took special care in location scouting to get that right architectural style of the houses the trick-or-treaters and Michael Myers visit on Halloween night. There are some houses 
here, built here in Los Angeles that are, are from the 1920s, and they look kind of hometown Haddonfield-ish. And so we tried to find as many of them as we could. Bloomington native and Halloween superfan John Anderson is able to look past the occasional geographic goof, a mountain range, or a California license plate in the background. He says the overall vibe of an Illinois town is spot on. Looks like where I grew up. This looks like where I rode my bike. You know, this looks like where I went trick-or-treating. It has that it's palpable on screen. And maybe that's why it resonates so much with people like us and of our, of our age that came up at that time. A franchise with 13 movies obviously produces a lot of fans, like Anderson and, full disclosure, Me Too. Fans have tracked four decades of movie clues to hypothesize the size and shape of Haddonfield. Carpenter says in his mind, Haddonfield has around 30,000 residents, about the size of Galesburg or Pekin. The later movies have had conflicting views on this. Haddonfield is apparently big enough to have a good-sized hospital, community college, a country club, two daily newspapers, but it's also small enough that the Warren County Sheriff's Department is the primary law enforcement agency in town. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. You can either ignore it or you can help me to stop it. It is very much in the real world. In Halloween, the University of Illinois, the Illinois Department of Corrections, and the Illinois State Police all exist and are referenced. In the sixth film, a character played by the actor Paul Rudd visits a bus terminal where a map prominently plops Haddonfield right on the I-55 corridor north of Bloomington and Pontiac. Can you tell me if a bus arrived from Pontiac last night? Sure did. Are you looking for someone? Here's John Anderson again. That was the first one that I recall specifically, like seeing seeing our town's name on screen. If I didn't jump out of my seat in the theater, I'm sure I elbowed, sharply elbowed my friends next to me. It was incredible. It gets weirder, too. In the 2021 movie Halloween Kills, a Haddonfield resident who is trying to hunt down Michael Myers is plotting his next move, looking at a map. The map is of East Bloomington, and he points right at 313 Carl Drive. That's the address where Bloomington's most infamous real crime took place back in 1983, the quadruple murder of Susan Hendricks and her three children with an axe and kitchen knife. Husband and father David Hendricks was convicted, but later retried and acquitted. That connection was pointed out to me by John Wyatt Dannenberger of Bloomington, another Halloween and John Carpenter aficionado. There must be a true crime fan that's on the production team of the new Halloween trilogy because the coincidence is too astronomical to believe. So what would it be like to live in Haddonfield, where a guy in a mask kills people, escapes custody, kills people, escapes custody, rinse and repeat? Well, you can expect a lot of generational trauma. That would be compounded by the fact that Michael Myers is not some external force. He's a hometown boy, born and raised. Eric Wesselman is an Illinois State University psychology professor who has taught and researched horror movies. It gets you where you think you're safe, right? So holidays, small town where nothing interesting ever happens, gets you where you're vulnerable. And, and I think that Haddonfield definitely gives that sense that, you know, everybody knows everybody. These uh, events that would occur would reverberate across the community, you know, eventually become their own folk tales. In the movies, that has manifested into mobs of Haddonfield residents trying to take matters into their own hands, frustrated that police have not been able to apprehend Michael Myers. The most recent film, Halloween Kills, leaned heavily into the torches and pitchforks reaction of the community. Evil dies tonight! Evil dies tonight! All right, everybody, calm down. The sheriff's department no, has no, 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 sheriff, we will not calm down. We have watched your department fail. Fail tonight! This is Haddonfield! This is our town! 
And that is actually not so far-fetched, according to Bill Lally, who has a PhD in criminology and is taught at ISU and Eureka College. Lally is also police chief in Deer Creek, Illinois, a town of about 700 just northwest of Bloomington Normal. In his career, he's seen agitated people show up to the police station or to a scene. We still have incidences of the public wanting to, I don't want to say take the law in their own hands, but they certainly want to be involved in the process. Let's put it that way. If an escaped mental patient like Michael Myers really started killing people, Lally says a multi-agency task force would likely form to catch him. The manhunt wouldn't be left to a single sheriff's department and Michael Myers' pistol-wielding psychiatrist. And it wouldn't be a very long movie. Lally pointed to the power of modern forensics and the proliferation of security cameras. Michael Myers would pop up on ring cameras all over town. Especially somebody who would be on the spectrum of being mentally ill, which is what we're basically saying here, the likelihood that they would be able to avoid eventual uh, detection and capture, I think is relatively low, quite honestly. Ultimately, none of that matters because 65-year-old Michael Myers is still on the loose. John Carpenter, the director, says the fandom around his creation was unexpected and wonderful. It just keeps coming. It's a gift. Everybody just tries to make a good movie from the very start. No one sets out to make a bad movie. Sometimes they really hit like this one. Reporting from Haddonfield, I'm Ryan Denham. We'll talk another type of scary cyber crimes. That's just ahead on Statewide. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Illinois ranks in the top 10 among states for cyber crimes for the second year in a row. The FBI advocates for people to practice cyber hygiene using practices such as automatic updates, unique passwords, and antivirus software to secure your devices and accounts. To find out more, Cole Longcore talked with the FBI Special Agent Aaron Van Hoff for what is known as the Cyber Squad. Prior to coming into the Bureau, I was a programmer, so I have a technical background coming in. Um, I initially worked criminal and then counterterrorism matters and eventually got to work cyber for the past uh, approximately 13 years. And, um, and we address all those issues that are in our area of responsibility here in uh, the lower uh, part of Illinois, or the central and low, low, uh, lower part, uh, which include both criminal and national security uh, cyber matters. What does the process look like for the Bureau to handle a cyber crime, and how does you know, reporting a crime work? So we are the, uh, the FBI's lead cyber threat response for the U.S. government. So any kind of threat that comes through cyber means, and when I say cyber, it's not necessarily anything that touches a computer, but anything that's sophisticated. And for the FBI, and our cyber investigations are structured different than most other disciplines. We, a lot of times if you're dealing, say, for instance, um, with a violent gang squad, uh, their gangs are going to be in their territory or... Um, uh, they might have international um, links, but a lot of times, a lot of their subjects will be in their in their area. Um, with cyber investigations, um, it's global. Um, cyber actors will hide where they where they're operating from through devices and IPs and proxies and and different technical means. They can hide where they're where they're w- working and operating from. And we, working with these other foreign partners, we um, are able to. Um, that's the basis of our investigation, trying to figure out where they are, what's the crime they're committing, and, and gain evidence of that. You might see it as um, a listener, might see it as a uh, suspicious email that comes through. Um, a phishing campaigns are very familiar to most people, I think, where 
and they've gotten a lot better. They used to be misworded. The English wasn't that great. Um, now, not only the wording is perfect English, but a lot of times it makes sense to what it is you're doing in your life. Um, if you were uh, just talking to somebody about vacations or um, it has something to do with your work, uh, a lot of times when there's uh, a term called business email compromise, so if a, a hacker is able to compromise somebody, get them to click on a link in a phishing campaign, that allows them access to that computer, which then allows them access to the network on their, at their work. And with that, they're able to view communications and very much so understand the day-to-day -day operations of that business. So then they can craft an email, say, from your boss to you saying, hey, set up an account for um, this new vendor that we have and send this amount of money over to them. And if there aren't checks and balances in that, if at the end of the day you're not going over with the, the approver of that who initiated that or supposedly initiated that email, and verifying with them verbally or some other means, hey, did you want these 10 transactions to go? Um, that transaction is going to go through and that money is going to go to a nefarious account. So if we, we often refer people to ic3.gov, that's the Internet Crime Complaint Center, and it is the catch-all for, there's just a quick form there, it captures all the pertinent details, it'll walk you through what we're looking for. And then what does the process of a cyber investigation look like? Like how long does it take to go from report or a complaint to an actual investigation and then hopefully some sort of action? You know, it really depends on easiest case scenario would be somebody who is local, uh, is the perpetrator or the actor or the subject of our investigation. And if they um, are sloppy in their, uh, their operational security, meaning when they're on their computer, they're not trying to hide who they are, where they come from, maybe in the scenario that I gave you with the business email compromise, they give their personal account to send the, the money to. And once we subpoena that account, we see, oh, this belongs to um, you know, person A, we then have them identified. So it's a quick turnaround for investigation. Um, if we have one of the more complex uh, cases that we have, if it's a, sometimes you have actors are motivated by financial gains. They wanna defraud people and get their money. Sometimes they wanna disrupt the lifestyle of a person or uh, sometimes a, a, a group, an organization, or even a nation. Um, nation state actors are the most advanced, we call them advanced persistent threats. They're the most advanced cyber threats that we have. They're, uh, in some countries, there's um, regimens of military that their day-to-day -day job is to figure out how they can hack their enemies. And if we're one of their enemies, then that's their day-to-day -day job is trying to figure out how do we hack and disrupt the United States. They're very sophisticated in that they're very well versed in the tools and techniques to hide their identities, to hide who they are and where the traffic, um, the malicious traffic is coming from the Internet. Um, and they're very um, diverse in their ways of um, their campaigns of trying to disrupt or steal from. It could be intellectual property. It can be research and development information. Um, but those are the harder ones to prove. Number one, what the activity is. Number two, who's doing it, and who's and ultimately, if we can figure out the individual, well, are they working for a nation state uh, mm -hmm. sponsor? So, those are long investigations, and typically, those are investigations the FBI will cover because they do take a lot of resources and take a lot of time. And in the end, it's not like you're going to have multiple, um, I guess, a win, and law enforcement will be arrests, indictments, those kind of things along the way. It might be. Um, not as many as you would think for all the resources and time you put into it. What are some of the top areas or um, categories, I guess, of uh, cybercrime? 
So cybercrime comes in different um, different areas. It just depends on uh, what's being targeted and, and the reasons they're being targeted. I would say probably the most common is financial gain. We uh, here in Illinois, based on 2022 um, Internet Complaint uh, Crime Complaint Center reports, uh, Illinois was ranked the fifth as far as crime victims at about a little over 14,000, and we were seventh for victim losses of 20, 266 million. The probably personal data uh, breaches, um, non-payment, non-delivery of services, um, extortion are uh, the highest victim counts. And then the highest monetary are definitely business email compromise, um, investment opportunities. Um, in those cases, if within the first 24 hours, it's critical. Uh, in the banking system, there's a bit of a, a lag um, between, say, when you deposit, and I think most of us are familiar with this, if you deposit a check in your account, it sometimes takes for that to clear. Banks now will say the funds are available immediately, but behind the scenes, it hasn't cleared from the other bank yet. It takes a day or two um, for those the transactions and the records to, to be, um, for one account to be credited and the other one to be debited or vice versa. So if we're able to catch a, a, a malicious transaction in between there, we have a mechanism back at our headquarters that reaches out to banks and says, hey, this is a fraudulent activity, this is a fraudulent transaction, please reverse it and send it back to the original owner. Um, and we're able to, to stop the funds from going where they shouldn't and then restore them back to the owner. So that's one of the key things. If you're able to, if you're in that situation, you talk to us, the quicker we can have that communication, understand what, where you bank, your account information, we'll send that to our team and they can get stuff reversed. Are bigger attacks actually more frequent or... Does it just vary in size of attack? So I think a lot of times there's probably, I don't know, I hate to give a percentage on this, but there's a lot more uh, malicious activity going on that we're just not aware of. Even, it doesn't matter if you're a private citizen or a corporation. Um, it's not, if you're a corporation, it's not a matter of if you'll ever um, have adversaries try to get into your system and be successful. It's a matter usually of when, and you have to be prepared for that. So we um, sometimes hear of these that come through the news and the media. Um, a lot of times uh, you might have instances where it doesn't get media attention, but it's, it's still ongoing and it's still, um, if you think about it, it's as if um, a non-cyber related example would be as if you had your house broke into. Well, maybe that does make the news, maybe it doesn't, but at the same time, it's devastating for whoever that's happening to, and it's a private issue. Um, and corporations, when they have these kind of things happen, it is, um, it, you know, it's, it's embarrassing sometimes, um, but it's also, uh, it just stopped everything that you're, why you're set up and configured as an organization or a business. It stop, usually stops everything, like in a ransomware attack case. Um, it'll stop everything you're doing, and you have to address this before you can get back to business. And if that's a critical infrastructure, if that's a, um, like a school system or a 911 dispatch center or a healthcare system, um, anything where we... Uh, demand that we have those services available all the time, um, that's a critical thing. And some of those uh, sectors might get more targeted because they are critical. And looking at the recent um, IC3 report, the U.S. is targeted exponentially more, um, almost double the amount of the U.K., which is the second largest, and 20 times more um, of the other reported countries include in the report. So why is the U.S. the largest country targeted? That's a good question. Those are good numbers. I believe it has to do with scale and opportunity. So there's a lot of uh, 
if you're thinking of it from a, a hacker's perspective, the attack vector or the, the surface which I can attack uh, to try and gain if it's for financial gains or otherwise is a lot larger. I don't think that adversaries look at it as, well, I'm going to target this uh, particular area geographically. I think it comes down to a couple things. Who are the targets that I'm going after? What, am I, what are my objectives? I'm trying to get finances. The IC3 report shows that the age group to file complaints the most is between 30 and 39, although the age group with the most dollars lost is 60 plus. Um, obviously, there's kind of a preconception or stereotypes that older populations less familiar with technology or tend to be the most vulnerable. So then why do we see a younger demographic file more complaints? That's a good question. Um, not really sure. I haven't really uh, looked at those numbers and, and done an analysis on it. But my first impression would be that that age group 30 to 39 seems to be a group that is unique in a couple of perspectives. Uh, they're in the workforce probably, or they're in the know-how of um, how the world operates. They probably have some perspective as opposed to somebody who might be younger as far as does this seem appropriate or not. Is this something I should report? And they might have a better understanding of anomalies and when it would be something would rise to somewhere I would report it to somewhere else. Um, and they might be more in the know. They might have more traffic coming in and out of their lives, whether it's work or their, um, their associates, their friends. They might hear things. Uh, folks come to them, you know, at a party and talk about what happened to them, either on a personal level or at work, that seems suspicious to that person. So they might have more of those tendencies to report things. I would say the older generation, and probably a few things, is one is they maybe aren't informed, maybe they don't know where to go make a complaint. They might not, they might be trusting. I I, I see this in the elderly fraud that we um, have reports that come in and, and the instances I know of is the older generations, like my parents and my grandparents, for instance, are very trusting, my grandparents especially. They were in a day where, you know, my handshake and my word is, is my bond and everybody went off of that. And um, today's day and age, especially with technology, it's sad, but it used to be, you know, trust but verify. Mm -hmm. I say now it's you got to verify before you trust anybody. FBI Special Agent Aaron Van Hoff, and he spoke about cybersecurity with Cole Loncor. To report a cyber crime, you can go to the website ic3.gov. A Rockford art gallery gave an audience a taste of African-American women's history, poetry, and performances all wrapped in one. Yvonne Booz has more. Dorothy Page Turner calls herself a Renaissance woman. She's a singer, music educator, playwright, producer, and many other things. She and her troupe led She Speaks at Enscape Collective and Rockford Listening Room this past Saturday. My black brothers. African drumbeats are yours to hear. This program highlighted the works of well-known poets like Maya Angelou and Nikki Giovanni, as well as a few local pioneers. Constance Vivian Carmichael Rennick Lane was born. Shiraz Hata is the co-creator of the gallery. She says emphasizing these artists is important for the community. Their writings have been so inspiring to the values of equity and inclusion and making sure everyone feels welcome, which is really our mission at Inscape Collective too, which is to create a space of some belonging. Paige Turner performed with Janet Wright, Carl Towns, Jacqueline Rogers, Colleen Martin-Williams, and Wendell Thompson. I am Nefertiti, and the fallen heroes 
Donnie Blount was there with his wife. He says he had plans to watch sports that evening. After looking around, he jokingly says he was in the wrong place. Hearing the readings took him back in time. Most of the stuff they said, I already, I kind of know a little bit about that because I went to uh, school in Chicago and then it teaches about black history. After watching some of the presentation, Blout retracted his comment about being in the wrong place and confirmed that he was indeed in the right one. I was born in the Congo. I walked the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough. He says he has never experienced this type of performance. He wasn't familiar with Paige Turner's work, but says he plans on attending more shows like this. Caritha Collins says she's known about Paige Turner for over 40 years. She says the venue was perfect for this type of performance. It's small and you can talk and get familiar with her and talk with her and ask her questions and things like that. And in a big space, you cannot. Collins was there with Adrian Walker, who is also familiar with Paige Turner's work. We all love Dorothy, and uh, she's such a professional excellent teacher and she knows our history very well. Paige Turner says African-American actors in Rockford, including the women, have been marginalized when it comes to the theaters in the city. She says this demographic doesn't have many platforms for performing. This led her to create one. Pretty women wonder where my secret lies. I'm not cute or built to suit a fashion model size, but when I start to tell them, they think I'm telling lies. In 2019, she produced these theatrical readings for the 100th anniversary of the women's suffrage movement. She highlighted the black women who were a part of that. For this occasion, she added playwrights, poets, and pioneers. Because people don't know, I mean, they know Lorraine Hansberry, <laughs> but they don't know so many of the people that we shared with them tonight. And they need to know that we were all over the place in history and, and helped to make, make history. The event was presented by Rockford Urban Ministries. I'm Yvonne Booz. She speaks. When I was in the third grade, I wanted to be president. I can still remember the stricken look on my teacher's face when I announced it in my class. Remember to listen to Statewide each week. You can also find our podcast through the NPR app and where you get your podcasts. We've got more to come. Stay right here. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Still ahead, we will hear more about extremism in the police ranks. But first, a Rockford Middle School recently held a human library event where dozens of middle schoolers shared a defining moment in their life with local leaders. Peter Medlin was able to be there. Aiden Jones will never forget October 14th. It was the day he got called to the dinner table for an important family meeting. And like any kid, he instinctively thought that he was in trouble. I had no clue what it was. I was sweating, but I was presented with a paper. I did not know what was going on. But my dad told me in a nutshell that I'm going down to the courthouse and he's going to be my new dad. I was so excited at that time. I did, I did not 
know what an adoption paper was or how it worked or what a dad was. I went down to the courthouse, got the paper signed, and officially changed my last name to Jones. To this day, I celebrate October 14th with my dad as an extra holiday as my adoption day. Jones is an 8th grade student at Flynn Middle School in Rockford, and he was one of 35 middle schoolers who volunteered to be part of the Human Library to share a story that in some way, either good or bad, has defined their life. Aubrey Barnett helped organize the event. She's a language arts teacher at Flynn and says the Human Library is a reminder not to judge a book by its cover. And the school invited community leaders, including the mayor, state representatives, and school district administrators to hear from the students. We really wanted this to be a chance for adults to listen to kids. And so much of what's out there in the world says numbers don't change people's minds. It's that human story that somehow leaves people with a memory. So we hope the people leaving tonight will remember these students, especially because they're civil servants and we want them to do what's best for our kids. The Flynn students sat in small semicircles around the gymnasium as guests moved from story to story. Barnett says some are traumatic, like talking about the death of a family member during the pandemic. And then we have really fun things like getting puppies or your sibling being born. So it's a really wide range of human experience. She says the guests are invited to listen and compassionately respond to the stories while respecting the students' boundaries and to thank them for sharing. Around the room, some of the stories left listeners with laughter or in tears. So it's not about just hearing people's stories, but it's about changing your mind and coming to a new understanding through empathy. The Human Library started in Denmark back in 2000, and since then, they've been held at schools and local organizations around the world. This is the second year they've done the project at Flynn, and Barnett says student participation tripled this year, and her students have been writing and refining their narratives throughout the first quarter of the year. Jamarie is another 8th grade student at Flynn who volunteered. As we began to bite on our nails and chew on our lips, in our head we knew we wasn't ready. We all had on dark blue Flynn gear with black Nike shorts and spikes with no socks. Her story is about track and field. Last year, her team sprinted their way to the state finals in the 4x100 relay. We started off so good until we got to our fourth leg. Our fourth leg fell and we were in second to last place. We were all yelling at her, get up, get up. They lost and at first, the team was mad and looking to blame each other. Then we started walking to our team as they were jumping up, telling us you guys did so good and how we made it this far and it doesn't matter if we got first or even placed something. Her teammates had her back. They, like the library asks, responded with empathy and understanding, and it's something that she's reflected on a lot over the past year. And all the students will now have the chance to reflect on how they felt being a part of the human library. Many of them were nervous to share, and Barnett says it's difficult to prepare students because while you can assure them that it's a judgment-free zone, you can't script the interactions. They don't know exactly how people will react. But now that it's over, they can support the students and celebrate how affirming it can feel to share your story. And Barnett says if it's anything like last year, she expects it'll create a buzz of excitement that drives even more students to want to be part of the Human Library next year. I'm Peter Medlin. Sanctuary City, that term has been thrown around a lot recently in terms of the flow of migrants to the city of Chicago. But where does the term come from? And what, if anything, does it have to do with the current situation? Esther Yoonji King sat down with Professor Kathleen Arnold, director of the Refugee and Forced Migration Program at DePaul University. She explains what a sanctuary city is and is not. 
Last year, when Texas Governor Greg Abbott started sending buses of migrants to cities like Chicago and New York, he said these sanctuary cities have the responsibility of providing resources and serving migrants. But that's not really what a sanctuary city does. So tell us what the term really means. A sanctuary locality, whether it's the state, a county, or more likely a city, these ordinances are based on non-compliance with ICE, which is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. They're a federal level policing agency that has been authorized to police immigration status without the normal checks and balances or the normal upholding of the Constitution. So sanctuary localities pledge not to cooperate with unconstitutional policing. There has to be proof or some sort of dire emergency with proof in order for that cooperation to happen. So then how has the term come to mean something more, like like a city that will take in and help all undocumented immigrants? I think there's an overuse of the term and a misunderstanding of what it does. But I was kind of like going through different statements by Governors Abbott and DeSantis, and they make this false correlation that these refugee flows or migrant flows are caused by sanctuary. And so you can see it in a number of statements. They might not use the word cause, but they're directly correlating the two things. Republican lawmakers like Governor Abbott and Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida say they're sending away migrants in order to uphold the Constitution and that sanctuary cities are are not actually following the law. But you've said that sanctuary status actually does uphold the Constitution, correct? Yes. So basically, the 14th Amendment was developed to protect people who could not vote. So it was introduced for people who didn't have legal status to protect what is now called their personhood. Ironically, when Republican governors like Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis argued that they're upholding the Constitution, they are violating the Constitution in at least two ways. They are treating people who are arrivals as if they're illegal without any sort of proof. Number two, they are violating the refugee protocol that is part of the U.S. law and migration policy. Number three, they are forcibly transporting them with misinformation. Um, and or not giving them much of a choice. And so there are coercive circumstances that some people have called trafficking. In those three ways, those are more serious offenses than people simply arriving at the border seeking help. Well, locally, some Chicago city council members have proposed measures recently to weaken or even take steps to repeal the sanctuary status. What are they trying to accomplish? So I think there are a few things, right? One is uh, perhaps there's like a completely political impetus to this. I think they're also trying to get people against migrants and not understand that basically if you get rid of sanctuary ordinances, you stop protecting people. They will not be able to report a crime. They will be afraid to go to schools. They will be afraid to seek medical help until it's an emergency. And very often this means sometimes not seeking help for your citizen children. But I think what one of the things they want to do is to basically take rights away. We don't want to take rights away from average people who are part of our communities. Okay, so given all of that, would repealing sanctuary status actually stop the flow of Venezuelan migrants? Absolutely not. One thing does not lead to the other. People did not flee Venezuela because they heard that we're welcoming in Chicago. Sanctuary ordinances simply uphold the Constitution. Professor Kathleen Arnold, director of the Refugee and Forced Migration Program at DePaul University. 27 current and former Chicago police officers appeared on a leaked membership list of the Oath Keepers. That's an anti-government extremist group that gained notoriety for the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. 
Now a months-long investigation from WBEZ, the Chicago Sun-Times, and the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project has looked into those officers in Chicago and elsewhere in Illinois, revealing the troubling records of some of those cops. They also spoke with people who say they had disturbing and racist experiences with officers who joined the Oath Keepers. Dan Mihalopoulos reports. It was a little before Christmas in 2007, and Deborah Payne was trying to help some single moms and their kids in her neighborhood on the south side, so she sent out an email. Hello, everyone. I have taken on a project with my heart. I have reached out to... Payne asked for donations from a bunch of people she knew in Englewood, including a police sergeant. I have here his response. You are a goof. Payne was stunned. She wrote back and asked why the sergeant, Michael Nowacki, would say something like that. His response was, you obviously are sending this unwanted spam to the wrong person. I have no desire to help inner city poor people. Any further communication from you will be considered harassment. What did you think when you, when you saw that response from him? I couldn't believe that someone would say something like that. Not just to me at all. Somebody that's hired to serve and protect. Nowacki would later sign up for the Oath Keepers, whose leader was convicted and sentenced to prison for sedition in the January 6th insurrection. And Nowacki has plenty of company at the CPD. He's one of nine current Chicago cops on the Oath Keepers membership list. WBZ, the Sun-Times, and the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project pulled the personnel files for all the Oath Keepers affiliated officers in Chicago and other parts of Illinois. We looked at their records, including misconduct complaints. And that led us to Deborah Payne. She learned from us recently about Nowacki signing up for the Oath Keepers and was outraged. Payne said he never should have been paid to police her mostly black community. He's working in a neighborhood like this and he can verbally talk down on the neighborhood. What about the oath he made to serve and to protect, regardless where he was at? Nowacki did not return messages. He's now a cop on the near northwest side. The leaked membership data also showed us why some cops joined the Oath Keepers. One Chicago officer promised he would use his position as a sergeant to, quote, spread the word for the Oath Keepers at roll call. And we spoke with other people like Payne, who recounted their own negative experiences with some of the cops who are tied to the Oath Keepers. He said, uh, he's just start calling me out my names. Everything you name in a book, that's what he called me. Special education teacher Brandon Forbish, who's black, says Officer John Nisesi Peruk directed a barrage of racial slurs at him during a traffic stop in 2014. Here's Forbish talking with a police department investigator after he filed a complaint against Nisesi Peruk. Because of me getting like that harassed and everything like that, I'm just scared to be around white people like that. And okay. I'm just, no, it's, and, yeah. and, and I feel that every time I see a police officer, especially white cops, mm -hmm. I feel that I'm dry, I'm driving. I feel that if I get pulled over, the first thing they're gonna say is, man, because I'm black. Yeah. And okay. it shouldn't be like that, but I'm paranoid now. Officer Nisesi Peruk was on the Oath Keepers membership list. CPD records show he denied Forbish's allegations and faced no discipline. Nisesi Peruk continues to work as a cop, did not return our messages. New Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson had promised in his campaign platform he
he'd fire officers like Nisesi Peruk and also any cops affiliated with another notorious extremist group, the Proud Boys. Now, Brandon Forbish is calling on the mayor to make good on his promise. Mayor Johnson needs to go ahead and do sooner than later. And that's what Mayor Johnson needs to come in and put his foot down and uh, do a thorough investigation about, about his officers in the city of Chicago. We asked the deputy mayor for community safety, Gary and Gatewood, where Johnson stands on this issue now. The mayor's position remains clear. This is something that we can't stand for, but we have to have people who actually want to protect and serve everyone, regardless of skin color, regardless of where you're from. As a candidate, Johnson had said the presence of extremists in the CPD hurts efforts to recruit a more diverse police force. I would imagine that for black folks who want to go into law enforcement, they don't want to have to serve with members of the Proud Boys. Just a few years ago, a veteran black Chicago police officer described exactly what it was like to serve alongside an officer who'd signed up for the Oath Keepers. The black officer accused colleague Christopher Hoffman of frequently using bigoted comments on the job. Here's the black officer talking to internal investigators for the department in 2017. If you were Stevie Wonder and you would come into our break room sometimes, you would think you're in the middle of a clan rap. You heard that right. A black officer equating the water cooler talk at a Chicago police training facility to a Ku Klux Klan rally. Hoffman retired last year and he declined to comment to us. But there was light punishment for Michael Nowacki. He's the sergeant on the south side who told Deborah Payne he did not concern himself with the inner city poor. When Nowacki was questioned about his messages to Payne, records show he told police officers he had some issues and made a mistake. He was suspended for three days, but Payne says she thinks Nowacki deserves much worse. Do I think he should have a gun? No. Do I think he should have a job? No. Man, this is so sad. Dan Mihalopoulos, WBZ News. Chicago's new police superintendent this week vowed thorough investigations after the reporting on misconduct records of cops tied to the extremist Oath Keepers. But neither he nor other police brass explained the department's lack of action since the membership list was leaked two years ago. We're out of time for Statewide this week. Thanks for being along and join us next time. We'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find this episode and others through this station's website and at nprillinois.org. Listen to us through the NPR app and where you get your podcasts. I'm Sean Crawford. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.